He's right. <laughs> Mine has learned well. Yeah. When you say she's right, men, do a little Father's Day sermon for you right there. Go a long way. Um, but uh, Michael and his lawyer served with uh, Noah Lee, who was uh, one of our former pastors in this area. They were in the Boy Scouts together, and uh, they were proud of him. Um, so the ones from the church, Kathy and Of course Kathy's in here. She's not backing up. Uh, Larry and Kathy, this is Michael's mom and dad. Uh, many of you, we've got so many new people, sometimes I make assumptions that y'all know everything that I know, and that's not true. Uh, so anyway, uh, Michael has uh, parents here, grandparents here, uh, Aunt Carolyn and uh, Aunt Aubrey, Aunt Aubrey, aunts and uncles and cousins and all kinds of things. You're, you're probably sitting by one. Let me just tell you that. You're probably sitting by, by somebody that's kin to Michael. Anyway, uh, Michael grew up in the church, and uh, he was at SFA, and he called me one day, and I thought, this is odd, it's really odd, and uh, he said, uh, would you come and have lunch with me? I thought, this is the oddest, you know, oddest, uh, that's my hall's disclaimer, the oddest, okay, so anyway, I saw some oddest yesterday, too, so anyway, um, but anyway, so we went down there and had lunch, and he said, I think the Lord's calling me to minister, and so he came to was an ECBUSD, and uh, and uh, also he uh, was our intern uh, for a while. And then uh, when Noah after Noah moved up there, uh, I called and asked Michael if he could use come up there, and the Lord called him up there. And, and uh, as I said earlier, they've done a great job. So uh, we're in for our treat today. Men's retreat from EMI, one of my favorites. So I'm looking forward to that. Victoria, uh, please come right now. I'll say that this almost applies a little bit to what I'm going to sing, but uh, when Noah moved up there, he told us, you know, one day I'm going to get you guys up here too. And I looked at him and laughed in his face. And I said, it snows. That's not happening. So you never know exactly what door you're going to walk through.
morning. What a treat this is to be here with you this morning. I, I look around the, the congregation and there are so many spiritual fathers and mothers in this congregation for me. People who invested their lives, disciple me from a young age, from Sunday school teachers. <laughs> Betty, oh my goodness. Uh, so many people who cared for me, grandparents and family who poured themselves into me. Of course, Tony and Jimmy and so many others that invested yourselves in me. And I'm so blessed to have such a rich heritage. And I'm so thankful for what this church means to me. Uh, of course, this also means if you don't like today's sermon, you have nothing but yourself to blame. So I am so much a product of so many of you. <laughs> We're going to be this morning in the book of Nehemiah. Will you turn to the book of Nehemiah? I, I really enjoy the book of Nehemiah. Like Tony, I appreciate it very much. Uh, Nehemiah is an interesting character, uh, I, and I know why Tony likes the book of Nehemiah a little bit. Because Nehemiah is very much the administrative guy. He, he is the guy who oversees and manages the details of all that's going on and, and carries forth a, a very large undertaking, a very large project. We were talking before about all that it entails to, to pull off something like City Reach and all the little details and the, the place to stay and the places to eat and all those types of things that go into it. And Nehemiah is very much that guy. In fact, Nehemiah is, is really a government bureaucrat and a construction project foreman wrapped up into one. Uh, and we're going to look at Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6. And what we're going to see is uh, the work that Nehemiah is doing is very much centered about rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And, and you might be wondering, well, why is that important? Why do I really care about some guy who rebuilt the walls of the city of Jerusalem? You see, the people of Israel, their life centered around the city of Jerusalem. In fact, in the city of Jerusalem was where the temple had been, where God's presence was uniquely and directly felt for them. And the city of Jerusalem, some 70 plus years prior, had been completely destroyed, had been razed to the ground, and it was nothing but a pile of rubble and rocks at this point in time. It had been destroyed because of the Israelites' disobedience to God. God had brought judgment on them, a type of judgment that they never expected or anticipated. In fact, when it came, so many of the people at the time were saying, this will never happen, this will never go forward, because God will ultimately protect us, as He's done in the past. At the very last minute, previous times, armies had surrounded the city of Jerusalem. At the very last minute, God had intervened. At one point, He sent an angel among the, the invading army and had uh, decimated the people and sent panic among them so that they killed each other and they ran off and fled and returned to where they had been. And they anticipated the same thing to happen, but this time... God was bringing his judging hand upon them. And so with judgment, God decimated the city of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was an Israelite, and he, had, he knew, and that was his homeland, that was his place where he had been. And he was now living as an exile, someone who had been relocated forcefully to a new place. And things had actually gone pretty well for Nehemiah. Nehemiah was working as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Uh, it had been the Babylonians who had invaded and the Persian Empire had taken over the Babylonians at this point. And so he's working as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And the cupbearer was someone who would really taste test the food to make sure it wasn't poison for the king. But he had special access to the king and the king would know who he was. And we're going to see today what happens. And what I want to see from Nehemiah's life the message I think Nehemiah has for us is, how, uh, how does our task, our work, 
our calling for God? How, how are we to carry that out? How are we to go forth and to do the things that God's called us to do? Yes, the, in the daily life of parenting and, and of work and of church life and of being out in, in, in the community. But ultimately, how are we to carry forth the ultimate task that God has assigned to us through Jesus Christ? To carry forth the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost world. That's ultimately where I want to go with the, the Nehemiah and his life. So let's jump into the book of Nehemiah. Let's jump in in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and get a little introduction to what's going on in Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah 1, verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived in exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Let us also pray. Heavenly Father, not to us, but to your name be the glory today as we look into your word. Teach us what you would have us to learn, uh, and show us the way forward. Give me the words to speak. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have a, a map up here on the screen of Jerusalem, and I laughed and chuckled when I took it from the study Bible that I have, because it says uh, Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah, uh, except this is probably the time of Nehemiah at the end of his life, because at the beginning of his life, Jerusalem, I said a moment ago, is nothing but a pile of rubble. Jerusalem gets, or excuse me, Nehemiah gets word about the state of Jerusalem from someone who's traveled there and been there. And he hears what a, a poor and sorry state that the Israelites there in Jerusalem are in. And Nehemiah's heart is burdened. His heart is heavy. He wants to do something. He, he's sad to hear that God's people are left in such a state and that the city of God, the city of Jerusalem is in such condition. You can see it there. But there would have been no walls and there would have been no, no houses. The temple would have been started to be rebuilt. Ezra had preceded Nehemiah there and it had been reconstructed under their leadership. And so Nehemiah's burden, he turns to God in prayer. That prayer ends up leading to an opportunity to talk to the king. Nehemiah speaks to the king when one day he stands before King Artaxerxes serving him his meal, no doubt. And the king looks to Nehemiah and says, why are you sad? You're, you're usually a cheerful person. You're usually happy. Why are you sad today? And Nehemiah shares what's on his heart. That his hometown, his city of Jerusalem, lies in ruins. And he has a unique opportunity. King Artaxerxes says, what do you want, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah is able to pour out his heart and says, I, I want to go back. I want to reconstruct that city. I want to reestablish its identity. I want to rebuild its walls. That's, we don't rebuild walls around cities today because we dwell in relative safety. But in, in those days, if you wanted to have a place that was established, a place that wasn't going to get ransacked by invaders, you had to have a wall about it. And so for Nehemiah to say, I want to rebuild the walls, I want to reestablish Jerusalem as a place on the map. It doesn't exist now. I, I want to rebuild it. And he has the opportunity with a favorable king who says, Nehemiah, Go and do it. I'll provide all the things that you need. I'll provide the wood that you'll need and access and paperwork and all the documentation that you need to go. Nehemiah goes. He serves as he becomes, uh, in fact, the governor of the city of Jerusalem. 
and his governor, he goes out, and when he arrives, after a couple of days, he goes out and surveys Jerusalem. He rides, it's this neat little scene where he rides out on his horse, and he's surveying really what's rubble and rocks around the walls, and he's looking and mapping out in his mind what's it going to take to rebuild this city. And as he travels around, he reaches one point where the, the horse can't quite go, and he gets off his horse, and he walks on foot up through there uh, in the night so that no one knows what he's up to. He goes and he surveys and he, he maps out a plan to rebuild the city. And then he leads, he, he works among the leadership and the people who, who are there. And he leads them to reconstruct the city in this amazing feat. He, he gathers them together and they begin to go to work, each one in their own parts and own sections. They go to work rebuilding the, the, the walls of Jerusalem. You may think it went smoothly and easily, but it didn't uh, because they were opposed. Many of the the, the leaders around the city of Jerusalem uh, of some of the other nations that were there were very much not in favor of rebuilding Jerusalem because they knew the impact and influence that it may have on them and the loss of power that they may have from that. And so at first they begin to kind of mock and taunt Nehemiah and the Israelites, kind of say uh, things like, oh, your, your wall construction is so poor. If even a fox jumped on that, that wall will fall down. You'll never be able to rebuild this wall. You should just give up now. But as the work progresses, they get more and more serious. And they, they start uh, to uh, threaten the, the Israelites. They start to say, we're, we're going to sneak in and attack you. And so Nehemiah has to take action and assign duty to people, different shifts to guard and protect the city of Jerusalem so that they're not invaded when they're, uh, while they're also trying to do this massive construction project. Uh, and before long, they're trying to trick Nehemiah to come out. They're, the guys' names are Sanballat and Tobiah. I love those names, Sanballat and Tobiah. They're very memorable. Sanballat and Tobiah are trying to get uh, Nehemiah to come out of the city, and they're saying, hey, why don't, why don't we get together and talk about all this? Why don't you come out here to this valley and meet with us, and we'll, we'll talk about some things. And Nehemiah kind of sees through that this is a trick to get him out on his own so that they can harm him or attack him. And so Nehemiah's, I'm a little bit busy right now, guys, and puts them off time and time again. And eventually they're, they're making up lies and they're making up stories. And they say, we're going to go tell King Artaxerxes that you're about to overthrow uh, this region and you're about to overthrow King Artaxerxes here. And Nehemiah has to say, you're just making things up out of your head. That's what he actually says in the Bible. Go look it up. You're making this up out of your head, guys. What are you talking about? That's nonsense. That's crazy. Uh, and it has to confront them. Well, after much work, uh, the, and the opposition from the outside. Nehemiah also has to deal with weariness and opposition and problems on the inside. Uh, at one point, uh, the people, the Israelites, are weary of the work. They are, they're saying of themselves, we're never, ever going to be able to do this. And he has to strengthen and encourage their hands to complete their project uh, to keep them on task. And at another point, he has to deal with uh, some internal strife, some of those group dynamics going on among the workers uh, because you see what had happened is the, the wealthy upper class in this area in, in Jerusalem has been, ta or been charging high interest rates uh, of the middle class. And the middle class are, uh, come to Nehemiah and say, Nehemiah, if you don't do something about this, we're going to be sold into slavery because of these high and exorbitant interest rates. We're trying to, we've come back here to, to Jerusalem. We're trying to help rebuild the wall. We're trying to do all these things. And, and we're just being uh, charged out through the nose to be able to just get reestablished. And Nehemiah has to go and confront uh, those upper class folks, uh, the wealthy and the powerful and, and the, the, those who are a little bit intimidating there in Jerusalem. And he has to confront them and say, brothers, you're in sin. 
You need to make a change so that it's possible for your brothers to come here and to help rebuild this wall and to make this happen. And he has to uh, confront that head on. And he's not able to dodge it or to, to just sweep it under the rug. But finally, in Nehemiah 6, verses 15 and 16, we hear this amazing news. We turn over to Nehemiah 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul. Elul is just the month. In 52 days. I don't know about construction projects around here. Uh, but we don't see many construction projects. I, I live in the state of Illinois. Not many construction projects are done in 52 days, even with all the equipment that we have. And, and they certainly didn't have that. So he rebuilds the wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. Verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. God had done an amazing thing through Nehemiah. God had used Nehemiah's willingness to go and to serve and to put his hand to the task and his leadership and administrative abilities. He had put those to work to accomplish the reestablishment of the city of Jerusalem. This is an amazing and incredible thing that God had done through Nehemiah. But we have to pause and ask, so what are we going to learn from the life of a government bureaucrat and a construction foreman today? What does this have to say to us? I want to draw out five principles for us from the life of Nehemiah uh, that I think is relevant for us as we seek to follow and labor in the calling that God has given each one of us. Yes, there's uniqueness and diversity in each of our calling, but we are all called to be faithful witnesses, to bear witness to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So principle number one that we see from the life of Nehemiah is that the work that God has called us to do requires dependent prayer. The work that God calls us to do requires dependent prayer. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. In other words, his heart was where his hands were. What he wanted to do, he put his heart into it as well. He, he was a, a man who was genuine before God. We see in chapter 1, we see a long prayer. See, uh, before, when he hears about what's going on in Jerusalem, he pauses and he prays and he confesses the sin of the people and the sin of himself before the people. Uh, and he, he asked God to intervene and to act. We see in chapter 2, verse 4, that when the king asks him, Nehemiah, what do you want? Why are you so sad? Nehemiah pauses and, and he prays. It, and I don't think it was an elaborate prayer. He, he doesn't go on for 30 minutes. Oh, God, oh, great and holy and all this kind of stuff. No, it's, this is a, a moment prayer. Lord, help me. Lord, get me through this. Give me the words to say. Lord, make me favorable to this king. Just, just a breath prayer, a, mo a prayer that can be prayed in one breath, he pours out to him. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when he's taunted and ridiculed by uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, Nehemiah takes that to God in prayer and says, God, you're going to have to deal with them. I can't. You're going to have to bring judgment on them. You're going to have to protect us. You're going to have to deal with them. In chapter 4, verse 9, when there's a threat of attack, Nehemiah prays to God. He sa it says that we pray to our God and post a guard night and day to meet this threat. He prays to God to, to remember the efforts that he has done for on behalf of these people. In chapter 5, verse 19, in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 9, he prays simply for strength. When it seemed like everything was overwhelming and they wouldn't be able to go forward, Nehemiah prays to God to give him strength. Dependent prayer reveals that it's not so much about Nehemiah and what he could do, 
It's not so much about us and our abilities, our strengths, our weaknesses, our, uh, whatever we can do. It's about God who works in us and through us to carry forth His task. You see, it's not so much that we, we have everything put together, we have the right words to say, we have all the abilities, we have the secret tricks, we have the newest and latest methods and techniques. It's that God works in us and through us by His Spirit. When we pray to God, dependent upon Him, it shows it's not to us, but to His name that should be all the glory. If we're to reach Longview, if we're to reach Tremont, if we're to reach the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ, if we're to reach even our neighbor with the good news of Jesus Christ, it will begin when we go to God in prayer. My friends, depend on God in prayer. Pray, pray long prayers. Set aside time in your day for prayer. Say at this specific time, whether it's your lunch break or it's before bed or it's early in the morning or whatever works for you, say, this is going to be my carved out time. It's pinned in on my calendar every day. I'm going to spend time with God in prayer. But then also as you go through your day, pray those breath prayers like Nehemiah prayed. Lord, help me. Lord, Lord help me know what to do here. I, Lord, work in this person's heart that I, I had a conversation with. Just those one sentence prayers. Your prayer does not have to be long or elaborate. In fact, most of the prayers of the Bible are incredibly short. One to two sentences most of the time. The Lord's Prayer, the model's prayer, just a few sentences. He says, this is the model that you should follow when you pray. And he just gives us a few sentences. He doesn't give us a whole book of prayer. He says, simpler than you think. Depend on me. Jesus invites us to depend on him. In Matthew 7, 7, he says, ask and it will be given of you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Principle number two that we see from the life of Nehemiah and how we ought to labor in the calling that God has given us is that the work that God has called us to requires diligent labor. The work that God has called us to requires diligent labor. So it requires dependent prayer, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't end there. We don't just turn it over to God and say, well, I hope he'll do this. I hope he'll work it out. No, it requires action. We read that verse a moment ago, uh, that when they were under attack, did you hear what Nehemiah did in chapter 4, verse 9? But we prayed to our God, and then we posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. It wasn't one, it wasn't just the other, it was both, and we need both. Nehemiah prayed to God, God, you're going to have to protect us, you're going to have to get us through this, we don't even have enough workers to get the wall built, and now we need guards. I don't know how this is going to happen, but Lord, you work in this. But then he said, we, we can't be foolish and say, well, God's got this. We've got to post a guard and protect uh, what we're doing here. So he does both. So the work that God has called us to requires us to be diligent in our labor. Nehemiah certainly was. He, he had a plan when the king asked him, what do you want, Nehemiah? He immediately had a plan. He had thought about it beforehand. What will I need? I'm going to need access to the, the royal uh, forest to get lumber. I'm going to need paperwork and documentation to be able to travel. And he immediately is able to ask King Artaxerxes for this thing. So he's done the planning side of things. He's also planning as he arrives in Jerusalem and he's surveying the city. He's going out and making a plan. How are we going to do this? How are we going to attack this? My friends, we will not make disciples accidentally. It doesn't happen by happenstance as we just kind of drift through life. 
People don't come to Christ because we're just kind of cruising along. People come to Christ because we have a, a plan and intention to share the good news with them, to live a life that's holy, to live a life of love and compassion toward our neighbors and toward our coworkers and toward our friends. It doesn't come along by chance or accident. We must plan. We must be diligent in our labor to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Nehemiah also called in chapter 3 to people uh, to work, to the task, that they had to, to rise up and do the things that needed to be done. Uh, and my friends, I hope uh, that you were eager to do the things that need to be done to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's so exciting to be here when uh, folks have just arrived back from City Reach, people who have gone and served and actually sweated and, and have calluses on their hands from the work that they've done. Let us not be slack in the task that God calls us to, because indeed he calls us to a life of sacrifice. Jesus came not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May we be giving our life on the behalf of others so that they would hear and know the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you see your time, your, your occupation? Do you see your parenting in your home uh, do you see all the things you do as an opportunity to labor on behalf of the Lord and to serve Him? Principle number three that we see from the life of Nehemiah is that the work that God has called us to requires determined perseverance. I told you that Nehemiah's work didn't go forth easy. It was hard. There was uh, obstacles and opposition that opposed him. Sanballat and Tobiah wanted to, to get things off uh, the rails. They wanted to criticize and critique and to tear him down and to put an end to the task. And we saw, in, in, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 10. In Nehemiah 4.10 we see, meanwhile the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. This is the people doing the work and they're saying we can't do it. There's so much rubble, there's so much disaster, there's so much work to be done. We won't be able to do it. They've grown weary. They've grown tired at the task. They're ready to give up and to give out. They, they are having to expend themselves, laboring so hard night and day. Uh, in fact, uh, Nehemiah at one point shares that he and, and the other leaders aren't even able to, to change their clothes because they're having to labor so hard. And in fact, it says, whenever we would wash, we would have our swords with us. And I was explaining this to my kids, and I said, this basically meant that they were wearing their swords in the shower because they were constantly having to be on guard at the same time they were trying to do the daily things of life and to get through uh, and to clean off from being out there among the, the dust and the rubble of everyday life. They're, they're overworked and they're overtaxed and they're ready almost to, to give up and to give out. My friends, we need to know that we too face obstacles and oppositions. Did you know you have an enemy that opposes you every step of the way when you're doing the things that Jesus Christ would have you to do? Now, when you're, when you're off on your own and you're doing your own thing, that enemy is all with you. He, he, he's not going to mess with you at all. He's happy for you to be doing that. But when you are on mission, when you're doing the things that Jesus Christ has called you to do, you have an active enemy who is going to engage with you, to oppose you, to undermine you. And he will do it from without. He will use the world and the pressures of this world to tear you down and to oppose you and to critique you and to try to stop you. And he will use the pressures from within. Oh, aren't you tired? Don't you need a break? You don't need to continue on. Give up. Take a rest. You don't need to do that. He will use both to oppose you and to stop you. 
But let us remember what Galatians 6, 9 says. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. My friends, we need to know that hard times, obstacles, and opposition do not necessarily mean a no from God. Do not necessarily mean that we're on the wrong path. It may very well mean that we are on the right path. We have to endure. Endure simply means to bear up under something. To continue on despite the weight and the pressure uh, that we're carrying. I remember uh, when I was in school, we would have, they didn't have all the books on devices like they do now. There were physical books, right? And we all had to carry around, you know, a biology book that was about that thick and a math book that was even thicker and, and all those things. We had to carry them around on our backs. And we would have to lug them about everywhere. We had to endure the, the, the load to get from class to class or from the car to the school building. And so, too, my friends, we are called to endure the load as we carry one another's burdens in the service of Jesus Christ. Let us not grow weary in doing good, because in the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. And that harvest may not come immediately. It may not come with immediate results, tangible results that we can throw up on a screen and say, oh, look at these great numbers, so many souls saved, and all this big splash. It may take years, it may take decades of perseverance to see lives and hearts change. We have to learn to play the long game. You know what that means, right? It means we're not just trying to win the immediate battle. It's like in chess. My son and my, my dad were playing chess the other day. It's like in chess. You, you can play the short game in chess and boom, I got your rook. Ooh, I got your bishop because uh, I, I just want to grab somebody real quick. But if you don't play the long game, your opponent can say, yeah, you got my bishop. But I put you right where I wanted you. My friends, we have to learn to play the long game as we disciple others. We have to learn to play the long game as we share the good news of Jesus Christ and, and live a life uh, that of love, and a life that is worthy of our calling. We have to learn to be patient with people, to see them mature and take steps, sometimes agonizingly slowly as they seek to follow Jesus Christ. We, we have to be patient and loving and caring as our Lord is with us. Number four, we see uh, from the life of Nehemiah that the work that God has called us to requires a cooperative effort. I love chapter three of Nehemiah, but it's probably the chapter that you would skip over if you're reading Nehemiah. Because if you get to chapter three, what you read is this family, and they have a horribly awful name that you can't pronounce. Uh, this family was building this section of wall from this tower to this gate. And they did that. And then this family picked up with that gate, and they built this next section of the wall over here to the next gate. And this other family, with this horrible, awful name, uh, they did this section. And they did this section. And they did this section. And I, I love him there at one point. He kind of, Nehemiah gets a dig, and he says, in this family, it was the common folks who were doing all the work of the, the, the wall because uh, the wealthier folks and the leaders of this family, they didn't do nothing. And Nehemiah kind of calls them out on it. And in Holy Scripture, we have this eternal record of, ah, uh, we see who actually did the work on that section of the wall. It wasn't, you know, the top leadership that gets all the credit. Nehemiah gave credit where credit was due. And, and chapter 3 shows us it wasn't actually Nehemiah who built the wall, was it? Nehemiah led, he encouraged, he made a plan, he, he, uh, he motivated the people, but it was 
everyday, ordinary people who were putting brick upon brick and putting some mortar in there and then grabbing another brick. And they had his kid uh, run over there and get some more rocks and carry them over here. And his brother and his uncle and his friend, they were all working together to accomplish this task. This tells us a couple of things. First of all, God uses everyday people, not just the big names that we see in the Bible. It's not just the rock stars of Moses and Abraham and Peter and Nehemiah. Uh, who God uses. God uses countless people in the Bible whose names we don't even know. And God uses everyday, ordinary Joes and Janes like us for His purposes. And so be willing to be used by God. But it also reveals that God desires that we work together to accomplish His mission. We, we need each other. Jesus Christ does not call anybody to be a Lone Ranger Christian. When we go it alone, we will fail. Because we don't have those who will encourage us and equip us and even confront us and challenge us when we need to be confronted and challenged. Nehemiah shows that it, it takes all of us working together. That's why Jesus Christ, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, calls us to be a part of a body of Christ. Calls us to be a part of a church. And so maybe today you need to say, you know what, I need to commit to a church. I, I need to plug in and, and, and say, I'm with you in this task. I'm going to labor together with you. Today you can do that. It also means that we also need a network of churches that we can work with. We need other churches because Longview Missionary Baptist is doing a really poor job in Tremont. But you're not. Because you discipled me and you sent me up there, right? Because and through others, through other believers, you can accomplish so much more. So be willing to partner with others for the task. If we're going to reach the nations, we're going to share the good news in the Philippines and in India and in Canada and in South America and in Europe and Asia. We need one another to complete the task. First Peter 2.5 says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's using this metaphor of rocks, of stones, being put together into a wall, just like Nehemiah was building. We are being assembled together into the building that God has us to be. So be together. Don't be that rock that's left out on the side. Finally, principle number five we see from the life of Nehemiah is that the work that God has called us to requires that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything that Nehemiah did was in response to the promises of God. We see that in his prayer that he, he's taking a promise of God and he says, God, remember when you said long ago that if we, we were straying from you, you would bring this judgment on us and you would use another nation to bring judgment on us. But Lord, you also promised that if we return to you, you would return to us and you would reestablish us. And so I am going to trust that promise. And as I trust in that promise, I'm going to go to work rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and trust God that you're going to be with me. My friends, we need to recognize and realize that everything we do must be in relationship to Jesus Christ. You see, Nehemiah was looking forward to a, a better hope than a, a city on a hill on this physical earth. He was looking for something better than rocks and stones that he was reassembling around this wall. He was looking forward to a new Jerusalem. His hope wasn't in, oh, I'll rebuild the wall and this will be paradise forever. No, Nehemiah knew there was something greater that God had planned for him. He knew that God was able to forgive and show mercy through a, a sacrifice that would come and to be made. And my friends, we need to look 
to Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him if we are to accomplish anything on his behalf. If we are to reach the nations of the world, it starts with a vibrant, on-fire relationship with Jesus Christ. My friends, I want to let you know, you can begin a relationship with Jesus Christ today. If you don't have a relationship with him, if you feel like in this life you're, you're drifting without a purpose, you're aimless, Jesus Christ offers you purpose and meaning. If you, if you are ravaged by your guilt and your known separation from God, Jesus Christ offers you forgiveness and healing if you will turn to him today. Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross and he rose again to give us hope, to give us a future, to give us life. My friends, today you can begin that new life with Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, as the one who has redeemed you and bought you with a price, and as your Lord, the one who leads and guides and controls your life. Will you trust Him? Will you look to Him? Nehemiah shows us much. We're to be faithful. We're to follow Him. We're to complete the task that we are given by God. It will only come as we trust Him. We'll ask our singers to come. Tony, if he'll come up here to be at the front. This is an opportunity for you to respond to what God's doing on your heart. This is an opportunity for you to hear the Word and to not just think happy, holy thoughts, but to act and to move to wherever God may be calling you. Will you stand together? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Nehemiah today that has taught us what it is to be obedient to you. May you make us faithful laborers in your task, in your calling, and in your kingdom.